Hello and welcome to the second episode of Deeper Than Data, a Data's six-episode summer podcast series. I'm Emily Jackson. And I'm Daniel Abawaji. And we are your hosts. Sudan was the world's largest recipient of humanitarian aid for the fifth consecutive year in 2009, with about a third of that funding going to South Sudan. Next Thursday, July 9th, South Sudan will be celebrating four years of independence. On that day in 2011, the New York Times described the streets of the new capital, Juba, as filled with thousands of revelers singing, dancing, and leaping on the backs of cars. They were all chanting one word, freedom. Just after the flag of South Sudan was raised for the first time behind him, former president of the UN General Assembly, Joseph Dice, addressed the crowd. His speech began, this is a beautiful day for Africa. Newly recognized nations like South Sudan find themselves in a unique position. Independence can bring with it a wave of economic growth and prosperity, but it can also bring instability and internal conflict to a region. In addition to the conflict with its neighbor to the north, South Sudan battles its own unique set of challenges. Because of historical tensions and colonial practices, political and ethnic divisions have threatened to destabilize the country for years. Just two years after independence, that history erupted in the form of a civil war that continues to this day. South Sudan received $4.3 billion in humanitarian aid in its first three years as an independent country. We want to know how that money is affecting the fighting on the ground. What are the implications of over $4 billion flowing into an area experiencing civil war? Can that money actually help to promote stability and extinguish conflict? Or is it possible that development dollars just make the situation worse? Aid Data and the Center for International Development and Conflict Management of the University of Maryland College Park recently partnered with others in an effort to answer these and other questions. This partnership was awarded a $2.5 million grant from the Department of Defense's Minerva Initiative to study aid in intrastate armed conflict. Aid Data's role is producing geocoded country datasets to show the specific locations of aid projects. We have two datasets, those for Iraq and Nigeria, coming out this summer. This week, we talked to several fascinating people who pulled back the curtain on these questions and more. We're talking about aid and conflict. Stay with us. In 1956, Sudan became independent, creating the largest country in Africa. Since then, the country has seen more years of conflict than peace. For 40 of the 55 years before South Sudan became independent from Sudan, the two entities were locked in civil war. It's important to remember that South Sudan has experienced decades of war, really since almost from the independence of Sudan in 1956. You, you, you have uh, large-scale violence in South Sudan. Um, and so you really have kind of two wars that take place, and these are very destructive wars, and they destroy, uh, you know, devastating for the human population, they destroy the infrastructure, uh, and, and there's very little rebuilding or, or state building that occurs by the government in Sudan because this is enemy territory. That's Dr. Philip Ressler. Uh, so I'm Phil Ressler, Assistant Professor of the Department of Government at the College of William & Mary. I'm also co-director of the Center for African Development, and I'm an expert on armed conflict with a focus on Sub-Saharan Africa. Dr. Ressler has lived and worked in Khartoum and recently finished a book on the causes of civil war, focusing on Sudan. 
He sat down with us to help explain the context of the conflict between Sudan and South Sudan. So, you know, what's important in understanding about Sudan and South Sudan, you know, historically is that, uh, you know, it's a very diverse country, mm-hmm. right? Uh, and you have diversity of, you know, ethnic groups, um, and, but also diversity of, you know, religions. So you have, you know, Sudan is predominantly a Muslim country, but then you have a substantial uh, non-Muslim population who's concentrated mainly in South Sudan. And the context of conflict within South Sudan. But then you have differences between those who I define as long ethnic lines. Yeah. yeah, and the two largest ethnic groups, um, the largest is the Dinka, which is the ethnic group of the president, Salva Kiir, and then the, the second largest ethnic group is uh, the Nuer, which uh, is the ethnic group of former vice president, Riek Machar. For a variety of reasons, a politically stable and capable state was not established after independence. How is it that a country given so much humanitarian assistance and international attention ended up in a politically unstable situation? Dr. Ressler suggested that one of the reasons may have been a reliance on foreign aid. Because the aid was coming into the country, uh, the, the state didn't have to extract and build a tax base. Right? And building a tax base requires building a bureaucracy, requires you know, this uh, social contract between the state and its citizens, which could have led to more, more accountability. Um, so that's not so much a, a transparency issue uh, as much as uh, kind of sub, you know, aid substituting for state voting. Um, but at the same time, uh, the state in South Sudan, which is so weak and so non-existent, that yes, over the long run, uh, you know, it might have been able to create this kind of bureaucratic capacity to extract taxes, but that's going to would happen over a number of decades uh, and over a very long time horizon. And there are you know, people in South Sudan need immediate kind of assistance. Then, in 2013, a dispute between President Kiir and Vice President Machar reignited old ethno-political conflicts within the original separatist movement, the Sudan People's Liberation Army. Uh, and so, as the co- political conflict between Salva Kiir and Riek Machar played out, uh, it did lead to mobilization along ethnic lines between these two uh, political elites. Since then, civil war has raged in South Sudan. The humanitarian crises there and in Sudan have attracted significant humanitarian assistance. In 2009, Sudan was the world's largest recipient of humanitarian aid for the fifth consecutive year, with about a third of that funding going to southern Sudan. When South Sudan gained its independence in 2011, it began to receive aid independently. The day before independence was declared, the UN Security Council created the UN Mission in South Sudan, or UN-MIS. The UN also set up a common humanitarian fund for South Sudan that September. As the humanitarian situation in South Sudan worsened, the number of displaced persons increased and the risk of famine rose. Often the first thing that a policymaker thinks of is, I will do an aid intervention in a particular place in the country with a particular type of aid in the hope that I will prevent a civil war or keep a civil war from continuing or uh, have some impact on, on conflicts. That's Dr. Michael Tierney. I'm a professor in the government department at the College of William and Mary. I'm the director of the institute here where aid data is housed. And along with Brad Parks and Rob Hicks and Timmons Roberts, I was one of the, one of the founders of aid data here at William and Mary. 
He's also involved in the Minerva Initiative grant Aid Data Shares with the University of Maryland, College Park, and others. That collective was awarded a $2.5 million grant from the U.S. Department of Defense to research the association between development aid and interstate armed conflict, like insurgency and civil wars. The relationship between aid and conflict in developing countries is a complex, multidimensional issue. On one hand, the presence of aid can create lootable resources or increase military capacity. When it comes to uh, aid flows, one of the things that scholars want to know is uh, if there is some resource that's lootable, if there is some resource that either the government can take and use it for some different purpose, or if a warlord or a potential rebel group can loot it and use it to increase support by giving it away. On the other hand, the presence of aid can promote stability and decrease the risk of conflict. Aid can increase economic growth and state capacity, reduce budget constraints, provide individuals with more attractive opportunities than insurgency, and make governments rely less on more easily corruptible natural resource revenues. The characteristics of aid impact effectiveness too. For example, a country's aid-to-GDP ratio can affect stability. If you want to have an impact on the ground, on some conflict outcome, the chances that you're going to have a big impact are lower in countries that are not so poor, that are not so aid-dependent. A 2008 study by Marguerite Duponchel found that the optimal aid-to-GDP ratio for post-conflict countries is 4.8%. In 2011, the aid committed to GDP ratio in South Sudan was about 7%. This harkens back to Dr. Ressler's suggestion that South Sudan and the international community may have relied too much on aid rather than state building. The fungibility or flexibility of aid can also influence conflict. So when someone says that aid is fungible or a good is fungible, it means that I, if I give you a dollar's worth of something, you can use it for that purpose or you can use it for something else. Mm-hmm. So the most fungible aid you can imagine is cash, right? So if I give you cash, you can spend it on whatever you want. You can feed starving children, or you can buy tanks and bullets. Aid in Sudan and South Sudan's common humanitarian funds is fungible. These are pooled funds of donor resources that are distributed based on where the most critical need is. It isn't clear whether this fungibility influences conflict levels in either country. So. One of the things that uh, we're really interested in is uh, not only where aid is going, you know, so if you give aid to regions of the country that are close to rebel groups, they, it might be lootable, but only if it's a particular type of aid. So if you have a government that you trust and you believe that they're going to use the aid in the way that you want them to use it, you, and they control, they have security and they control particular regions of the country, you might fairly be able to give them fungible aid because they're a trustworthy partner. It's possible that this high concentration of aid and its fungible nature influenced the creation and severity of conflict in South Sudan. In 2011, the international community had goodwill and high hopes for this new country. Although aid and development assistance aimed to promote stability, that isn't what ended up happening. This relationship between aid and conflict remains unclear. We have strong hypotheses. We have strong beliefs. I won't say that they're confirmed, but we have strong beliefs about the impact of transparency on aid effectiveness. And I think that it's a very short step to say, you know, if aid is more effective, it is going to be more likely to increase stability 
uh, and provide public goods in a, in a particular country. We can't be positive about these relationships until we have granular subnational data to fully examine the dynamics of aid and conflict. But we already have an idea about what transparency can do. So the more transparent things are, the harder it is to steal and the harder it is to waste. The only way you can coordinate is if you're transparent with the other donors. Mm-hmm. Dr. Ressler emphasized the potential value of transparency in state building too. In addition to the other problems with corruption, and that it just, uh, you know, it, it reduces trust in the government, it's wasteful, uh, the, it, its effect on political uncertainty and conflict becomes kind of an explosive combination. And so there you have maybe a, another role for transparency as kind of one of the, the effects of transparency and the benefits of transparency is in reducing corruption, you avoid waste, you increase trust in government, but you also help and to contribute to political stability uh, because it becomes harder for any one given individual to, to take funds and use them uh, in ways that others you know, can only imagine how they're using them. Finally, something both of our interviewees stressed is how important transparency is for accountability. Here's Dr. Russler. The more transparent uh, aid is and, 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 and the more information a population has about what aid is coming into a country and where that aid is going and how it's supposed to be used or intended to be used and then what the government does it, uh, the more accountability there will be. And Dr. Tierney? If donors and recipient governments are transparent about those commitments, then it does enable those beneficiaries to hold donors and their governments accountable for delivering on those promises. In times of conflict and civil war, hundreds of thousands of people may rely on humanitarian aid to survive. It isn't clear whether aid helps or hurts conflicts more. Every case is complicated and depends on many interacting factors, such as whether aid is lootable and how strong a state's political institutions are. But during times of conflict, one thing we do know is that aid can help people if development partners and governments are transparent about where that aid is going and to whom. For the people of South Sudan, independence was once seen as a symbol of hope for a prosperous and peaceful South. But independence also brought great challenges, concerns, and questions. There is certainly room for transparency to make a difference in South Sudan. A way to keep all players accountable will be essential moving forward if we hope for our aid interventions to be an effective support to the people of South Sudan. If you liked what you heard today on Deeper Than Data, head over to Aid Data's blog, The First Tranche, at aiddata.org blog. You can find resources about the aid conflict nexus, read about the humanitarian response in Sudan and South Sudan, and more. On the next episode of Deeper Than Data, we're giving a preview of the third Financing for Development conference. Join us two weeks from now on Wednesday, July 15th for episode three. Finally, we'd like to extend a big thank you to Dr. Michael Tierney, Dr. Philip Ressler, and all the other minds that contributed to this episode behind the scenes. This is Emily Jackson and Daniel Abawaji. Thanks for listening.